Good morning, church. How we doing? Good. I'm Scott Weatherford. Merry Christmas. So Tara and I are moving to Wimberley this week. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, two moves equal a fire, and this is uh, our second move pretty quick. And so I've been singing the Queen song. Anybody uh, know what, who Queen is? Okay, yeah, we're not supposed to, but yeah, we do, right? Uh, the, singing the song, The Things We Do For Love, you know? The things we do for love. Yeah, and that's moving is one of those things. So at my house right now, what I have to do is keep moving because Tara will put me in a box and tape me up. Of course, she's looking at me, keep moving. You watch football all day yesterday because Jesus asked me to watch football yesterday, baby. But we're, we're boxing and we're moving and we close on, on Thursday. We're excited. I want to say, uh, how about those Wimberley Texan football players? Football team, yeah. It's awesome. Uh, I told uh, Caleb and uh, see uh, JoJo here someplace. Oh, you move, dude. How can I aim at you when you move? Okay. But I, 22nd of December, I've saved the date in Dallas for, for the state championship. So I'm calling it. Pastor Scott called the Astros to win. Of course, if a prophet's wrong once, you stone them. So I'm not calling y'all to win, but play hard, okay? Good, that's right. So that's coming up. So we're excited about that. A couple of things I want to talk to you about. First of all, in the pew back in front of you, if you're a guest with us, or if you've got a prayer request, update information, or by chance you make a spiritual decision you'd like us to help you with, cards are in the pew back. Uh, they're they're going to be in the bulletin from now on, but if you could use that card, that would be great. We could help you with next steps. Right now, going on is our new members class being taught, our first step-in class being taught, and that's the way you become a part of this family. Uh, we'll offer that again in January, plus we're adding the second class, and that's step with, and that's what it means to be connected and to grow to spiritual maturity. So step in, be connect, uh, step with, to grow. So those are the kind of cool things going on. One other thing, I'm going to jump in to this. My level of perspiration when I preach is directly tied to my level of inspiration, and I'm sweating this morning because I cannot wait to jump in to this talk with you guys today. As I've, uh, like I've confessed to last week, I normally don't preach during December. I have other people preaching December because I like to goof off and be Santa Claus and that kind of thing. But this year I'm having to work and I've dug into some stuff. I can't wait to aggravate y'all with it in a little while. But before we get there, let's talk about year-end giving. Let's talk about, first of all, what do we want to do to make an impact on the world uh, through our generosity. At this church, we're crazy. We set a $50,000 foreign mission goal that we want to give of and over and above $50,000 to touch the world for Jesus Christ. How does that sound? Is that crazy? That means we're going to have to give, y'all. The second thing is we're asking the Lord to work in our hearts in a big, generous way that we'll outgive our budget and that whatever's left from that, we need to do some things around here. First thing, we got to fix the boardwalk of death. And that's the, the boardwalks that lead out to the student building, to the children's building, to the office. Uh, we got to fix that before it becomes a lawsuit. So uh, you guys, we need to do that. So y'all pray for that. Uh, we already had somebody step up and get it, get the ball rolling. This morning, one of our precious folks handed me a check. He said, this ought to get it going and hallelujah for that. So that's, it's on our way. So soon the boardwalk will be done. Then I'll have to make fun of something else. Now I have a confession to make. Okay, so hold on to yourself. I promised you guys that I would give you a free Christmas CD. I made a CD uh, a few years back. We found the, the MP3 files. Dan made 100 copies of that 
and they're all gone, Dan. The first service took them all, Dan. Dope, not next week. Tonight, if you come, I know Dan's going, oh, if you come to the AGM tonight, we will give you a Christmas CD. Doesn't that sound fun, Dan? So you and I this afternoon, you know, guess what we're going to be doing? Yeah, I'll, I'll buy you lunch. I hope you like, we're good. we'll go down to the Czechoslovakian restaurant and get you something to eat. That's quick check, y'all, if you didn't know what that was. That's the, yeah, so uh, we'll, we'll have those CDs. Uh, is there any way we could put those online so you could download them? Probably go to jail, right? Yeah, let's don't go to jail. Neither one of us would do well incarcerated. Yeah. Some people say that I often sing like a prisoner. I'm behind a bar looking for a key. That was funny. All right, that's enough of that nonsense, right? Okay, let's jump in. Go ahead and take out your, uh, take the weekend with you notes, and let's take some uh, notes together. I think this is going to be a fun, fun uh, gathering for us as we look at what God's Word says. Scripture, all of God's Word, all of God's Word is bread and honey, milk and meat. It feeds our souls. It shows us what to do, how to think. It builds us up. It's, it's, it's everything we do, everything we say, everything we're structured, all of our philosophy comes right out of Scripture. And so it's, it's powerful. And through my life, I've had God speak to me through his word. Now listen to me. God gives us scripture, sometimes for a season and sometimes for a reason. And it's often to correct ourselves. But in a, some seasons, he gives us scripture to give you hope. Some of you may be dealing with aging parents or, or kids or financial concerns. And God gives you a, a scripture for a season, be anxious for nothing, but everything in prayer and petition, make your request known to God and the peace of God, which just passes all understanding, will inhabit your heart and your mind as you trust in him. That's for a season and for a reason. Uh, several years ago, I was up really worried about the future and how we were going to take care of our family. We we're living in Canada. Uh, Canada was so incredibly expensive. Everything was 40 to 50% more, and the money was worth about 15 to 20% less. And I was thinking, how in the world are we going to make it? And that little voice that whispered to me that sounded like my voice but not my character said, how long are you keep sinning? What? Yeah, worry is a sin. Did y'all know that? Dang it. And we want to fuss at people for this and that. We don't even want to deal with our own hearts and our lives. So God gives us scriptures for seasons and reasons, but he also does this. He gives scripture to define our lives. And we used to have a habit, I don't know if you guys have ever done this, but we, we said, this is my life verse. And people have life verses and have started, I've heard Pastor Rick Warren say, this is my life verse, and he quotes a scripture. Other pastors, this is my life verse. Well, y'all, if I ever have a life verse, I'm gonna talk about that today. This, this, is my, this is what defines me, and I think it's going to be amazing how it defines us. First time I went to Israel, which is in 1999, I went as a tourist, just like everybody else. I wasn't leading the group. Uh, when we go this year, this will be my fourth or fifth time, I think it's fourth or fifth, that I can't remember, to Israel. And, and so I, I never want to go again as a tourist. I always have to go as a leader, because I went as a tourist and when you send a preacher to Israel and you don't let him preach, it's like this, I feel like Bali, this, this volcano was bubbling and spewing, and I just couldn't wait. So day two, we're there, and we'd been through all this stuff, and I was with this other pastor. He pastored this huge megachurch in Dallas, 
and I was kind of along for the ride, and, and, uh, and he, we were coming into Nazareth. And Nazareth, as you know, and maybe you don't know, was the hometown of Jesus. This is where Jesus grew up, where Jesus played football. He was quarterback. John the Baptist was wide receiver. And Jesus would just part the defense every time. Part the defense. Part the defense. And nobody wanted to touch John the Baptist because he was crazy. He was a crazy football player. Anyway, I'm teasing Jesus didn't play football. It had been soccer, but anyway. So we go into Nazareth, and we were going to the synagogue where Jesus really announced to his hometown his ministry. Now, you're not honored in your hometown. You're just not. The place you grow up and the people, you see, Shakespeare said this, familiarity breeds contempt. And when people know who you are, watch how you're growing up, they're not going to see God working in you. There's very, very rare for a pastor to go back to their hometown and pastor and lead a church. Very rare. I've seen it done a few times, but those are the exception, not the rule. It's very rare for that to come back. And Jesus was back in his hometown. In fact, Jesus said a prophet is without honor in his hometown. And he goes into his hometown, and, and, and he's there in the synagogue in Nazareth, and that's where we're going to be. That's where, where I was. And, um, and the, they say, hey, Jesus, why don't you say a few things? And that happened to me. And the very passage that Jesus quoted that day is the very passage that God gave me on March the 2nd of 1992 as my life verse. You see, I was going into a process of transitioning from music ministry. And Scott, you, you remember John Weinbrenner? You guys are the sheep of the goats. I'm not going to say which was which, but uh, on the, my right and my left. But uh, in those days, I was making that transition and God's Give this, gave this passage to me. And so I was in the very place that Jesus unfolded the scrolls and read, and this was my life first, and this is what Jesus said that day. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Luke, Dr. Luke, who wrote this, that's in Luke... Um, Chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, Luke says he rolled up the scrolls and he said, he looked at him and said, hey, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What? Jesus just went public with the fact that he was the fulfillment of messianic prophecy in his hometown. Of course, you guys know what happened. Revival broke out. They had dinner on the ground. And, no, they wanted to stone him. And the way they stoned people in the Bible, they didn't chunk rocks at them. You know, people say, oh, they picked up rocks and they chunked them. No, no, no. They, they would push you off a high place and then drop rocks on you until you were dead. If the fall didn't kill you, they would drop rocks on you. And in Nazareth, there's this sheer wall that leads to the Armageddon Valley. And they were going to push Jesus off it and throw rocks on him. Of course, Jesus, it wasn't his time, so he slipped through the crowd. But Jesus made this ostentatious, outrageous statement about himself that day. And reading that passage in that place, what it did is it further aligned my life to the call of God, of the kind of church that he wanted me to pastor and to be a part of. Now, your incredible lack of judgment voted me in in June to be your pastor now we're in this together. And what does this mean to be this kind of church and to be this kind of people? I want to be what God wants me to be. Don't you? 
The desire of my life is not to align my life for my pleasure or my comfort, but for the glory of King Jesus. Don't you? And so as I read this passage, I want us to turn our attention to this passage and let you see how who we are as a church family is literally the fulfillment of this passage of scripture. And then in turn say, let's live all for Jesus. Y'all ready for this? Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you're going to say this morning. And I pray that you speak through me, that it'll not be my words or my thoughts, but Father, your truth that leads us to a life that's worth living all for you. And I thank you for what you're going to do. You're incredible. You're good. There's none like you. And I pray you just customize this for those who listen. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Now, this is what we say. We say around here, we exist to build lives and honor God. Have you guys heard that before? Okay, answer, just say it with me. We exist to build lives that honor God. Okay, what does that mean? Okay, let me tell you. We, just, we want to see you connected to Christ and connected to each other in the family. We want to see you grow to be like Christ in his character and his behavior. We want to see you serve God, serve Jesus, serve Christ by serving other people according to your God-given shape. It's your spiritual gift, your heart, your ability, your personality. We want to see you contagiously share the love of God in word and deed, locally and globally. Let's call it global. And then finally, that's a life that honors God. Well, those things happen. So this is what we do. We bring people in, we build them up, we train them for, and we send them out. Bring them in, build them up, train them for, send them out. Bring them in, build them up, train them for, send them out, rawhide. Got it? Okay, so that's, that's what we do. And so you've been invited in to be built up, to be trained for, and to send out so you can do it again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And this is a life that honors God. This is not normal. But this is biblical. And this passage of Scripture really sets in process that entire philosophy. So let's start. Isaiah 61, verse 1. If you have a Bible, you can turn it with me. If not, we'll project it up on the screen. You can jot that down. And I've broken this out. We're going to use a fancy word. We're going to exegete this scripture. Doesn't that sound fancy? We're going to exegete the scripture. But let's look at it. The Spirit of God. First, here's one which you see. The Spirit of God changes everything. Who would think that the God of glory would choose to live within my heart? Who would think that? There's no other belief system in the world that declares that the God who made everything comes and lives inside the hearts of those who believe. See, every other belief system says, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. And God says, no, you come to me and I live in you and I enable you to do this. It's the transforming power of God. It's the spirit of God dwelling in your heart changes everything. Listen to what Isaiah said and what Jesus said. The spirit of the Lord is on me. The spirit of the Lord, in some translation says, has anointed me. Now, this is a huge statement for those who are listening to Jesus that day. Because all throughout history, there's only two people that had the Spirit of God resting on them. That was King David. The Bible says when David was anointed king, the Spirit of God came and dwelt on him, lived, inhabited him. 
when David sinned against Bathsheba and he wrote that famous Psalm 53 and he says, Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. David thought because of his behavior, God would give up on him. I want to say this to you. God will not give up on you even when you're stupid. He holds you. One of the, one of the foundational theological uh, understandings of our church, one of our doctrines is that we believe in what's called the perseverance of the saints. In other words, once you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you will not fall away and be lost again. Jesus holds you by his grace and by his commitment, not by your behavior. You know what that does? Create security. When I say to Tara, hey, baby, I'm going to love you until you do something wrong. How's that going to go? Not very long. What if she said that to me? Ain't going to last long. Love will be gone, gone, gone. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Based on my behavior. But when I say to her, baby, I'm always going to love you. Even when I die, I'm going to love you after I'm dead. Well, sister, that's unconditional commitment. And I could build my life on unconditional commitment. And that's what God says to you. I love you, period. I don't love a future form of you. I love you now. And I'm working on that future form of you. But I love you now. And I love you with a love that will not let you go. So all you have to do is come to me and let me love you. And I'm not going to give up on you. I can't outsin him. I can't outstupid him. That's security. And the spirit of God being upon you, David couldn't outsin God. The second guy that had the Spirit of God upon him was John the Baptist. It said the Spirit of God came upon John the Baptist while he was in the womb. Now, you have to be careful by building a doctrine based on an isolated incident. John the Baptist and Jesus were the only ones who had the anointing from the womb. Now, of course, Jesus had the anointing from beyond the womb because he existed before the womb. And John the Baptist was that, can you imagine hanging out with Jesus and John the Baptist? They were cousins. Wouldn't that be crazy or what? I mean, these two guys, uh, God in flesh and the guy that the Spirit of God was dwelling upon. Now, I want to kind of demystify this a little bit, okay? A lot of times we start talking about the Holy Spirit, everybody wants to go, weird, 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 weird. No, 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 no. It's the Spirit of Jesus. The Holy Spirit and Jesus and God the Father are one. They're three in one, three manifestations of God, three personalities of God. When the Spirit of Jesus dwells upon you, the Holy Spirit, it's he himself dwelling in you. Wow, Jesus says, I'm going to send a comforter, a parakletos is the Greek word for it. It means someone to come and put your arms around you, someone to come and live inside you, someone to empower you. And this is a bold statement. Jesus was saying, you get this, he was saying to the people in Nazareth, get this, I am God. In his hometown. Either he was a fool or he was the truth. And we know through the lens of hindsight of history that it was the truth. He was and is God. And you, my friend, those of you who believed in Jesus Christ, 
have the same indwelling spirit living in you. Now, if you're Christian, I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, I got the spirit. Now, you, you got to learn how to say that like a preacher. I got the spirit. There you go. That's right. That's right. And that's the truth. And it's not some braggadocious arrogance. It's a declaration of that God who loves me has forgiven me and has moved inside me. And when I have the spirit of God dwelling in me, no weapon formed against me shall stand. No hurt, habit, or hang-up will define me. I belong to Jesus, and he lives in me. In me. And when you receive Jesus, it's the power of transformation not just information. The power to be transformed. I hate to tell you this, y'all, but most of the time in church, we spend our times trying to teach you stuff and still allowing the Spirit of God to transform you into his people. And so many of you know more than you do, don't you? You know more than you do. But God wants you to be doers of his word and not just hearers. When you find Jesus, you receive his spirit. Hey, Jesus said, the spirit of the living God is upon me. Why? Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And that's you. You're poor. And somebody say, I ain't poor. I got money, 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 money. I got cash in the bank. You're poor because you're poor in spirit. Literally, without Jesus Christ, we are bankrupt. We owe a debt we cannot pay. We're literally children of the devil. And when the Spirit of God, Jesus says, I've come to bring you to myself, and that when we come to him, then we become people who, who are then redeemed by God. You see, when we're poor in spirit, this is, listen, this is, this is, I think this is kind of cool. God wants to do something for you, first of all. He wants to do something for you. He wants to heal you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to break the chains that bind you. He wants to change the way you think, the way you see. He wants to do something for you. He wants to do something in you. He wants to make you be born again. He wants to take this old heart out of you and put a new heart in you, his heart. He wants to do that. But then he wants to do something through you. That he doesn't do these things in you and for you, just for you. That would be just the biggest pull of narcissistic behavior you could imagine. He does this so he can do something through you. That we literally become the hands and the feet of Jesus. We literally have the heart for God and the mind of Christ and the hands of Christ and the feet for Christ and we live all for Jesus. This is a life built by God and this is what he wants to do in, for, and through you. And he wants me to respond to his rich offer of grace. You see, God is rich in mercy and, and he's unlimited in unfailing love and grace. Unlimited. 
And when Jesus said this, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he's talking about you and me. I got good news for you. And the good news is that Jesus is for you and not against you. That's good news. He's for me and not against me. And the anointing of Jesus then is passed on to me because I belong to him. So now I can become the proclaimer of good news. Good news to Wimberley, to Buda, to Kyle, to Dripping, to New Braunfels, to San Marcos, even to Austin. That God is for us and not against us. And that we could be the people that God is for us and not against us. And see, Jesus is the one who binds up the brokenhearted. Listen to this. And he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoner, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for all who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festivals instead of mourning, splendid clothes instead of despair. This passage is so incredibly rich. As I look at this, that I see that my broken heart can be healed. What is brokenheartedness? Do you ever struggle with depression? I do. Every preacher I know does. Charles Spurgeon, one of the famous preachers in history, struggled so hard with depression, he often could not get out of bed. And depression is an illness, and it's not a sin to be sick, y'all. We had a really frank discussion about depression in, in ministry this week with our staff. And it actually started a little bit before that because I'm going to be honest with you. In the church, it's the last place you want to admit that you have a mental illness. I met with my advisors on, Monday, on a Tuesday night. We had a robust conversation about mental illness. And these guys, this is what they said. This is who you guys have selected to be the overwatch. They said, we want to be a church where it's okay to admit you're broken. It's okay. If somebody has diabetes and they take insulin, we're not going, oh, they're on insulin. But if they take an antidepressant, it's like, oh, what? Now get this. I've taken a lot of psychology and adolescent psych and abnormal psych and all those kind of classes in, in my studies. I got to thinking about some cures to depression. Let me give them to you. There's basic four basic steps to defeating and curing depression. You guys want to hear about this? Yeah. Number one, you need community. You need to be connected. You can't keep the secret. Depression grows best in isolation. You need people who really care about you. That you can say to them, hey, I'm struggling. And they'll probably look at you the same, like many of my staff did, looked at me the same and said, yeah, yeah, we struggle too. Who knew? Because we're Christians, we can't confess our brokenness to one another. Baloney. You need community. We've got a cure for that. It's called connection. 
We want you to be connected to Christ and connected to the body. You need community. Why the heck do I keep talking about you need a group? Because the Southern Baptist Convention gives me a bonus by everybody who's in a group. No! So it builds your life. Hey, guys, guys, look at me. Girls, y'all, don't pay attention. Guys, we're going to launch a ministry for you guys on January the 8th. We're going to have a wild game supper, and we're going to watch football together on the 8th. And our whole deal is that we want guys to be in community. Not creepy community, but real brotherhood. Mark it down. Johnny, I probably should have gone public with that, but now you're on the hook, brother. It's going to happen, okay? And and I've been picking up possums and raccoons on Purgatory Road. I don't know what fox tastes like, but it's soon going to be good. No? No roadkill? Darn it. Well, Johnny, the way I've discovered the way you get fresh roadkill, on my way in, I circle everything with white paint, and on the way back, everything that's not circled is fresh, so I pick that up. If we fix a gumbo, ain't no telling what's in it, right, K. Jones? Yeah, you know, yeah, maybe we. But um, you need to, um, when you struggle with depression, you need, you need to do something for yourself. You need time of solitude, of reflection, of reading, of journaling. Uh, some people call it meditation. We would call it prayer. You need spiritual discipline. That's what we call growth. You need to do something beyond yourself. You need to serve somebody. You see, depression basically will become insidious when you're self-focused. When you get externally focused, depression starts losing its grip on you. So you need to be service-minded. You got to serve somebody. You got to get out of yourself. And we call that service or ministry. And then you need to be able to share your hope with one another in word and deed. So connecting, growing, serving, and sharing is an antidote to depression? Yeah. It's not just something we puke out and put on signs. And No. It's the center place of a life that's built that honors God. Hey, you young, you young folks, y'all get this early? Your life's going to be much richer. I grew up in a church where it never was taught. I had to figure it out. This is just one beggar telling you other beggars where the bread is. That's a cure to, to depression, to anxiety, to addictions. This is a life that honors God. And that's what we're about here. But it's not some kind of psychobabble, pop culture nonsense. This is biblical and it's timeless. This is God's word. This is Acts chapter 2. This is, a, this is Isaiah 61. This is uh, Colossians 3. This is John 17. This is uh, Acts 2, 42 through 47. This is Ephesians 4. I could go on and on. It's who we are. Who we are. And it's liberty from being sinned and sinned against, from being held captive to, to my culture, to my brokenness. That God's favor then is not based on my behavior. I think Dan was going to tweet that out. God's favor is not based on my behavior, but it's based on God's goodness and his grace and his mercy.
that he wants to comfort me and he wants to provide for me so I can comfort you and I can provide for you. It becomes reciprocal. And this is declared righteousness. This is so awesome. As I dug into this, and, and you really can't understand the Old Testament without understanding Hebrew culture. And the best place I know to go to Israel with me and understand Hebrew culture, it changes everything. But in Hebrew culture, there's two things that's said in this passage that just says, hey, you're loved. Here they are. First of all, it's sacred oils, scented oils, fragrant oils. That, that means says you're accepted. When you would come into somebody's house and they would accept you, they would put oil on you. Number one, it's because, probably because you stunk and you needed a bath. So they put some oil on you so you wouldn't stink. Doesn't that make sense? Because, you know, you're sweating and you've just been riding a camel. You need some oil on you. But also it had healing medicinal purposes. They put oil on you to heal your wounds. And, and, and also, also oil was a symbol of unity. I smell like you do. <laughs> Y'all ever had one of these sweet old ladies hug you in the church and they got on all their cologne and did you smell like them for a while? I smell just like sister so-and-so. I probably ought not to say that. That's creepy. Anyway, but it, you just like, we want to smell. That's, that's what it's the sacred oil means. You're invited, you're accepted, you're healed. And then the second thing is a festive garments that you're clothed in righteousness. This is what God does for you. This is so cool. I think it's cool. That when God kicked Adam and the woman out of the Garden of Eden, you know what he did for them? He gave them a fur coat. Clothed them in animal skins. To cover up their shame, it says, hey, I got you covered. I got you covered. And I got you covered. I will send a redeemer. We'll cover you. It was a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do on the cross by shedding his blood that we might be covered with his righteousness. Fast forward to the prodigal son when Jesus gave this awesome word picture about the prodigal son and he came home and the daddy saw him and he ran and met him. Daddy threw all dignity to the winds. He ran and met this boy and he hugged him. And he said, bring a robe. Why? To cover him in family. To say you're accepted. Then fast forward to the book of Revelation. And you see the people worshiping Jesus before the throne of the, of the lamb and they're, they're clothed in garments washed as white as snow. They're covered. Every one of you covered who belong to Christ. You have festive garments on because you're clothed in righteousness. And for Jesus to say this and to bring this out and for Isaiah to prophesy this, this is God is delighted in me and he's healing me and he's forgiving me and he's restoring me and he's doing these things because he really loves me. And Jesus is the one who prepares you to live all for him. Listen to what he says. They will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord to glorify him. One translation said they'll be called the oaks of righteousness. Jesus brings you to himself so you might live for him, not for yourself. You see, your life is to display God's glory. 
1999, it's the same year I went to Israel for the first time. Just before that, I went in November, but in September, I buried my best friend. He died of pancreatic cancer. His wife came to me, and this guy, man, he was far off from God when I first met him. I mean, but God saved him. He worked in his life, and he became just this example of righteousness. When we did his funeral, our room set uh, 1,200, and it was packed, and people standing, and people came to Christ at his funeral because of the declaration of his life. His, his widow came to me, Susan, and she said, uh, Scott, I want to do something in honor of Billy, uh, in memory of Billy. I said, well, what do you want to do? She says, I want to plant an oak tree outside your window of your study. I said, cool. And she, so she planted an oak tree. Not a little one, a big one. Big truck, put that thing in the ground, and it flourished. Beautiful. I left there. About four years ago, I went back, and I was talking to a new pastor, and the new pastor's a dear friend of mine. He was my student pastor for seven years. So, you know, I'm Papa Scott to him. He says, you know, that oak tree outside my window, I think I'm going to cut that down. I said, no, no, Mike, don't do that. He goes, why? I said, that's for Billy. He goes, really? I said, yes, Susan planted it because Billy was an oak of righteousness. He said, we're going to water that thing and fertilize. That's what we're going to do. And that's what you are. You don't want to be a wee satch of righteousness, do you? A cedar tree of righteousness. You won't be an oak of righteousness. And that's what the Lord says to declare, this is what I've done. You know what I love about oak trees? They extend from generation to generation to generation. The house Tara and I are moving into here in Wimberley has got oak trees everywhere. And I love it. I love it. There's a few, oak trees are gorgeous and they make great barbecue. See, Jesus is the one who prepares me to live for all for him. I have a dear friend of mine. He's my counselor and has been for a long time. See, I think pastors ought to have a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, and a counselor, and a mentor. I have a counselor. Dr. Schufer Davis, he was, uh, in fact, he did mine and Tara's premarital counseling. The best advice he ever gave to Tara was, you need to marry him. Little did you know the ulterior motive because he's a mess and you can fix it. Anyway, good luck with that, sister. Um, so Dr. Davis Shuford, he preached a message uh, at the, the church we, Tara and I were attending, and I'll never forget it. And he asked this question, would you live for Jesus if heaven wasn't a part of the deal? Would you live for Jesus if heaven wasn't part of the deal? And I said, yeah. 22 years old, 23 years old, I said, yeah, I would. I'm glad it is. And it is. Next year, I'm going to talk to you about what Jesus said about eternity. And uh, you don't want to miss that talk. But it is part of the deal. But the life he gives us is worth it, even if it's not. The peace, the hope, the joy, 
living for something greater than myself. So I want to ask you a question. Do you live for Jesus? Or do you just study Jesus? Is your devotion measured by your knowledge? Or is it measured by your life change? Most of us don't need another Beth Moore study. We need to apply what we're learning from Sister Beth. Most of you don't need another sermon, if you get you one. And you say, what does God want me to do? What does God want me to become? What is he saying to me today? How do I live differently? You see, if your study doesn't lead to transformation, it's a waste of time. Here's the last thought. Jesus then sends you out to restore others. You are restored restorer. And they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore former desolation. They will renew, they will renew the ruined cities and the devastation of many generations. Strangers will stand and feed your flocks and foreigners will be your plowsmen and vine dressers. Why did Isaiah say that? Because Isaiah is including the Gentiles in on this. Us. But you will be called, you, you will be called the priest of our God, the Lord's priest, and they will speak of you as ministers of God. You. You. Every one of you who's trusted Jesus Christ is a minister of God. A minister of God. Now, you're not all pastors, thank goodness for that. But you're a minister. And ministers have a ministry. No matter your age, you are. This is the great calling of God to restore you so you can join him in the restoration of others. And there's nothing like a wounded healer or a wounded, broken restorer because they have the knowledge to know what it means. You see, God's not interested in cities. God's not into, you know, fixer-upper Buildings, the fixer upper people, and remodeling people. And God's into remodeling culture and restoring culture. Most of us don't realize it, but God loves culture. God is a God of culture. God, you know, God, there's over 60,000 species of beetles in the world. And I'm not talking about the four guys from England. Uh, some of you have no idea what that means. Ask your grandparents. They'll tell you who the Beatles are. <laughs> but here's the deal. God loves variety. God loves Kazakhs, and God loves Africans, and, and God loves, um, he loves Asians. He, he, he loves uh, folks from, from uh, Latin America. He loves Americans. He, he loves Canadians, eh? I mean, God loves culture. In our church in Canada, we had 48 different people groups in our church. 48. And what God was doing, he was bringing all these cultures together to let us see what heaven was going to be like. And different cultures have different way of greeting uh, each other. And it's just so cool. Like uh, my friends from Congo, when you greet my friends from Congo, they're from Africa, they go, oh, Pastor Scott, you're the lion of Africa. Come, my brother. And they would loud and they would grab you. Instead of shaking your hand, they would grab your arm like this. And they would pull you close, and then they would bump heads with you. 
bump here, bump there, bump in the middle. <laughs> You're like, cool. Then our Asian friends from, well, it depends on, there's so many different kinds of cultures within Asia. They're, all the Asians aren't alike. You know, the Chinese people, the Chinese people basically are Southerners. They just speak different language, but their culture is the same. They fry everything. They cover up everything. They're Southerners. You know, they don't want anybody to know their dysfunction. They're Southerners. So when I figured out they're just Southerners who talk funny, I was good with them. They're all polite. And they would, uh, my, my friends from Thailand, they'd always take their hands and go, oh, Pastor Scott. I like that. Oh, Pastor Scott. And I'd go, oh, Pastor Scott. No, no, I'm not Pastor. You're Pastor. I'm not. I was confused, but I, I liked that. The Filipinos, it was all about a party. They go dance, they go sing, they go eat something. And when you invited them, and they didn't want to hang out with everybody else, they want to hang out with Filipinos. And when they invited you in, you were a Filipino just like they were a Filipino. And they teach you how to do the monkey dance. They put coconuts on your head, and they would eat with their hands. They were awesome. Awesome. My friends from, um, from Latin America, they couldn't talk to you without putting their hands on you. It was all touchy, touchy, touchy. Stop it. They just touch you. And then you just have to converse, touch you, and you touch you, lean, touch you, they get close. And I love that about my Hispanic friends. You close. Now, my, my friends from uh, Iran, they were the best, absolutely best, the Farsi people. And I was translated into Farsi every weekend. And they would, oh, Pastor Scott. And they would grab my face and they would kiss me. The guys would kiss me on both sides. Oh, I tried that with Colin. We're never going to do that, buddy, are we? No, it's just weird. Yeah, we're good. We're like Texans. Good to see you, brother. Keep, don't be kissing me. Yeah. You kiss your horse, but don't kiss your buddy. That's right, yeah. And so that was that kind of whole, and God loves that. But he wants to redeem it. And he wants it to, to be brought into his family so he can build you up, train you for, build you up, bring you in, build you up, train you for, send you out. That's what he does. And I love that about God. And this is why this church exists, y'all. We are the restorers. And this is the place to have your life built. You see, this town, this area, this state, this nation, this world will not recover unless we take this mission of God to our hearts. To our hearts. We are their stores joining God in his redemptive plan. Man, I hope, and I'm cheering for, and I want our high school football team to win state because I want our state to look in to see little Wimberly has been transformed by the spirit of God. And that he will leverage the temporary fame of a state championship to bring eternal glory to his name, that God is the God of this valley. All for Jesus. You see, one of Satan's favorite schemes is to make you comfortable and to make you focus in on yourself. And God's antidote is to be building lives. Say, it's not about me. And this, my friend, is worth my life. I stood in that synagogue in Nazareth that day. Started that church in 1992. In 1999, I stood in that synagogue and I was reminded 
This is it. This is worth my life. This spring, when we go back to Nazareth, we're going back to a replica of the ancient city of Nazareth. And in that synagogue, I'll break open that scripture. We'll have a moment. Because this is what it's all about, y'all. I'm looking for a savior who builds my life, and I found one. His name is Jesus, and he in turns wants me to be used by him to build you.